Hi guys, this is the Hearsay Podcast. My name is Saya. Thank you so much for listening. This is episode number 40. Holy moly, my podcast is going to start having a midlife crisis soon. It's so exciting to get to 40 seeing I do this all by myself. Um, And I had some really great news the other day. Hearsay has been nominated for an Australian Podcast Award under the Literature, Arts and Music category. Um, This is not a voting thing, so I'm just talking about this to share the loveliness with you. Um, Also, I have no expectations that I'll win or anything, but I'm just feeling really happy that I've I've been recognised for my little podcast. So thank you, Australian Podcast Awards. Uh, So my guest today is Rayanne from Sydney punk band The Hard-Ons. The Hard-Ons have been around for a good 30 years plus. Um, They've toured the world a million times. Ray is also an incredible artist and has done all the Hard-Ons cover and t-shirt art as well as stuff for other bands. Uh, We also have a lot of his artwork around our house so it was super nice to talk to him about this at the end of the chat. Um, Having such a long music career, Ray has also just got so many amazing stories, which I'm sure you will enjoy, including his strange show story illustrated by Glenn Smith, known to some as Glenno. Uh, Glenno is next level amazing, and you can check out some of his artwork at glennoart.com, which is G-L-E-N-N-O-R-A-T.com, or on Instagram at glennoart. He does pet portraits, or Petriture, as he called it. Um, I have one he did of my dog Whiskey, and it's my favourite thing. Anyway, enjoy this episode number 40 with Rayanne from The Hard Ons. I find that there is prejudice against really heavy, heavy, heavy music, and and, and also there's, it's, there are people, lots and lots of people who listen to it, non-ironically. Yeah. You know, I know, I know lots of. There was a period when people, like funky kids, were walking around wearing Iron Maiden t-shirts, but they couldn't tell you any of their songs, and I kind of find that, um, I don't find that wrong, but I find that strange. Yeah. That. Irony should be an end to itself, but that's what we've got now. Yeah, you, know? you can get Ramones T-shirts at Topshop. Like, yeah, they're everywhere, and I yeah. reckon all the kids wearing Ramones T-shirts would have no idea. Yeah, who they are. Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty. Weird. I find that really strange. It is strange. Yeah, it but is I'm strange. a musician, so musicians find things like that really yeah, strange. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> did you always like metal? Like, did you, so you moved? Yeah. You moved to Australia from Korea when you were nine. Yeah, because that was um, hard rock was um, massively popular when we came to Australia in 1974. Did you have memories of music in Korea? A um, little bit. Um, uh, I grew up on a military base. My father was a fighter pilot there, and so um, he was an officer. So officers were allowed to have um, their family at the military base, but um, that didn't last long. I mean, I was only there for the first two years of my life. and But I still remember, like, certain songs, like um, some Beatles songs, some Creedence songs. They, it was almost like they were always there from when I was born. And I can't... I just can't remember uh, the first time I heard certain Creedence Clearwater Revival songs or Beatles songs and I just can't remember when I first heard them because I must have heard them before in uh, utero or something I don't know <laughs> yeah well when I was really young yeah, yeah. I have the same feeling exactly yeah. with those yeah. two bands yeah. yeah yeah it's really strange heavy metal was really um well not heavy metal because it, it people didn't really say heavy metal too much in the mid seventies was like, I think the term heavy metal didn't really get thrown around until the the late seventies from what I remember. But hard rock was certainly really popular when I was a kid. So what what were those bands? Um, well, ACDC, yeah, uh, being Australian, and also Led Zeppelin, uh, Deep Purple, Kiss. Kiss were my favourite band when I was a little kid. 
Um, they, were, they were phenomenally popular with my friends and, you know, around my neighbourhood. Well, Kiss is such a great band to like as a kid because of the theatrics of it all too. Like it's yeah. just like, what is this? Yeah. It's pretty uh, yeah. cool. It's 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 escapism but the, the songs are so good too. Yeah. Yeah, I really like them. You Have know? you heard um, – I just heard this really recently. There's a bunch of um, Paul Stanley stage banter mm. that's been um, – taken not out of context but i guess it's been like snipped together oh yeah yeah have you heard that no and it's just him going like do you want to get high <laughs> yeah yeah it's so great yeah. it's just like it's goes for 20 minutes heavy metal is both fictional yeah because you know like when we're not singing about cold gin and stuff gene gene simmons didn't even drink you know yeah right um and uh you know and also it's full of rhetorical questions you know like um are you having a good time? Yeah. Hello, Sydney. Are you having a good time? Yeah, so yeah. what kind of question is that? Do you want to get yeah, high? Well, of course I want to get high. <laughs> Do yeah. you like the taste of alcohol? Well, yes. <laughs> They're all rhetorical questions. And, and re- rhetorical questions at, at concerts are, are there to just egg you on. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? They're just statements. They're not questions. They're just statements. Yeah, yeah. Like vibe. Vibe well, makers. Yeah, they, they, qu- they just they, – they need – the crowd to scream back yeah. because that that's part of the show. Yeah, and you can't do that, but with, um, you can do it easily if, with questions. You yeah, because questions demand and responses. high pitch. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about. Um, did you start on bass? Um, no. Uh, there was um, there was an acoustic guitar around the neighbourhood that used to make the rounds. So I was trying desperately to um, learn guitar and I found that it wasn't that hard you know and um so I had a little chord book and and I go to my friend's house and and he'd teach me a few chords and stuff and Kesh and Blackie from the Hard-Ons I don't know if you know yeah. know their names but yeah, yeah. the drummer was Kesh and the guitar player was Blackie but they Kesh was kind of like a multi-instrumentalist so he was um singing, playing guitar, playing drums and like just swapping around with um, a, a couple of other guys. There was, But the core was Kesh and Blackie, they were the core. Yeah. Uh, and this was 1980. Uh, they, were, they had demos and stuff for this band called the Dead Rats and I was a guy who was doing, you know, like little cassette covers for the demos and stuff. And um, I kind of looked around and I really wanted to form a band as well but... You know, I talked to like, you know, I was so keen to form a band that I'd, instead of um, picking guys that were like musicians and going, I, you know, I need you to form a band with me, blah, blah, blah. I'd actually pick friends who I'd got along with and yeah. go, how about you form a band with me? I need a drummer. Do you feel like learning drums? I and still do that. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? So yeah. I was, I was, that's so, more important than someone who knows how to play something. To get along. Well, that's debatable, <laughs> you know. But you know, but you know, but when you're when you're like fourteen, that's what you end up doing. Yes. So, um, but it got to the stage when when what did I have to show for it? By mid nineteen eighty, all I had to show for it was a whole bunch of logos of fictional band names that I was coming up with. Do you remember any of the names? Yeah, the session. I remember that. That's a good one. Yeah. I remember that because the guy, one of the guys that was kind of talking about maybe forming a band with me, his favorite band was a jam. Oh yeah, and that was also my favorite band. You know, one of my favorite bands. Great and it's band. like, I like the name Jam. It's like, yeah, it's like, oh, what what sounds like the Jam um, <laughs> a session? You know, it's like, a great idea. Yeah, so we had this name, and I thought, I'm not wearing a suit, you know, because <laughs> you know I was. You didn't want to be like a mod. No, I didn't. I hated the Jam's image. I yeah. just thought it was just just stupid. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but I, 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 you know, I, the image that I liked when I was that age was the Stooges, uh, MC Five, um, you, you know, Ramones, uh, not so much Sex Pistols, but the Damned. Mm. I was I was so obsessed with their image. Yeah. So I was into. That kind of long hair or spiky hair or certainly not suits. No. Something that was a little bit out of bit control. On, something, on edge. Yeah, yeah, something that was a little bit 
fast and loose. Yeah. Not the jam, you know, no. like not you know like the wingtip black and white shoes and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. I just didn't like that. Yeah. And so that that band name session it was only to appease my friends. I remember that band. Um, one of the other names was the Flying V's because I thought we could all go and buy Flying V's. Yes. Yeah. Um, another. <laughs> um, uh, another band name was the D Cups, um, <laughs> but years later I found out that there was a, there was actually a band called the D Cups, um, just because it was it. yeah because just because it was obnoxious. Sure. I just realised that um, Blackie and Kesh were going to need a bass player one day because they, they used to say because the 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 drummer that uh, the bass player that they had Peter, he was um, he didn't fit image wise because he was. Peter was, um, he was very athletic and he was like one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. Yeah. But he was into kind of like the more, I remember him talking, uh, talking to him about things like Janis Joplin, um, Ted Nugent. He loved Ted Nugent, uh, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple. I mean, we all love that stuff, but by 1980, the Sex Pistols and the Ramones had broken right through. Yeah. It was fine before 77. You know, sure. you could talk about Janis Joplin and the Doors before '77, yeah. and it was like that was that was kind of like the cutoff point. After <laughs> that, you know, then you went into the Seekers and stuff like that, and you don't want to know about it. <laughs> but after 1977, it's like there was a whole new world of even edgier stuff. Yeah. Well, for people our age, so uh, I remember Blackie saying, you know, Peter, you know, he's he's got to fend the bass and he's. He's a good player, but he plays with his fingers um, and he's got the bass pretty high up and <laughs> he doesn't really fit image-wise. You needed some downstrokes. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it didn't, didn't fit ideologically yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, and I was thinking, I'm going to go and buy a bass. I reckon, <laughs> I, can, I reckon I could just – I reckon I could go through the back door here. <laughs> so I – Asked my parents to buy me a bass, so they bought me a bass. It was a Japanese Washburn, uh, and um, I, I I went up to Blackie and 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 I said, um, "I bought a bass." He's like, "Okay, duly noted," and that was about it. And then within um, within um, uh, six months, they asked me to um, um, join the band, and uh, in that six months. Um, I think it was more like six weeks, but in that time I hadn't really played it, you know, so I was just playing records at home and playing along with it, but I didn't, you know, it wasn't really that technically advanced, but I thought, well, you know, the whole punk ideology is that you don't have to be that technically advanced. So I just had all this get up and go. It's yeah. kind of all I had. And, and after I joined the band, I joined the band, uh, I guess, Towards the end of 1981, um, and then I went on a uh, like a, a kind of like a a school trip to Indonesia, and I came back, uh, and it was 1982. It was just before we went back to school. Um, uh, by then, I was 16. Um, we started practicing in uh, 1982, and 1982 was a really good time to start practicing because. All these bands had just toured. Uh, the year before, The Cure, uh, Magazine, XTC, all these bands that we loved yeah. had just toured. And in 1980, The Stranglers, um, XTC again, um, The Ramones had toured in 1980. And, and in 1982, right at the beginning, Susan the Banshees and The Clash came. Wow. So there was all these, it was just non-stop great bands touring. Are these all bands that you could have seen underage? Or at oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I didn't see the clash because I was in, I was overseas when okay. they came, and and I came back and I remember Blackie and Cash just going, "We just saw the clash." And I'm like, "Oh no, I missed it." <laughs> it's like, "Hurry up, we gotta form a band." Yeah. And so they were supercharged by having seen the clash. So it was a real catalyst for wanting to be. Oh, completely like that. supercharged, yeah. you know. So Hardons didn't record for another three years. No, we recorded in '85. Okay. Yeah. So that was the first recording. But we we had all these demo tapes. Yeah. Uh, which ended up on a reissue of um, one of our CDs recently. But 
Um, but you started to play gigs after that thinking uh, uh, you were so inspired by these amazing bands that were touring. No, we, we, we didn't play uh, um, we didn't play gigs because of that, but they, they were like a, a real, you know, um, I, they put this idea in our head. It's like, oh, we want to do that kind of yeah. thing, you know. Um, but in 1982 and 83, we played a lot of shows, but they were just all um, kind of like um, people's birthday parties yeah. or church hall gigs or yeah. community hall gigs where, you know, somebody would have uh, like a, a get-together in a church hall and they, they'd need bands so we'd be one of the bands and that kind of stuff do you remember your first gig together yes it was uh in it was in kesha's bedroom uh no in lounge room uh for um uh kesha's uncle's birthday party it was a it was like a so um uh it was all sri lankan families there so it was packed full of sri lankans right and um so we played um I've got a photo from that gig and it's on the back of one of our records. Um, and so we played, uh, I think there was like, so that would have been like March or April 1982. March maybe? February, yeah. March, April 1982. You have an incredible memory for dates. Oh, I don't know why. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it was the most detailed interview I've ever done. <laughs> Everyone's really um no, I, vague I, on history. I um kind of look at photographs and I go, that must have been in June, and it's because <laughs> people are wearing jackets, right? Yeah, so I go, right. okay. So and then then you go, okay. I remember, I remember um going to a barber shop and and cropping my hair really short, you know, um that and that was when when i had a photo of a whole like bunch of photos of like punk bands and i took them in my pocket to the barber shop and i said like one of these things and um and you know i like paul simon and the bass player from the clash's haircut yeah, yeah. and also jello biafra's haircut <laughs> when when i was a kid yeah and so i remember taking these photographs and that was 982 i remember that was at 82 and then after i got it cut really short um and that was in year year uh, eleven in high school, and I remember my hair growing out because I kind of got obsessed with um, the Stooges, mm-hmm. and so I started growing my hair out like the Stooges. And by by the time I graduated high school in nineteen eighty three, my hair was like shoulder length. Yeah, you know. Um, so I remember these things by associating, you yeah, know, yeah. association. Um, That's great. My daughter's like that. My daughter's got a really good memory. Um, Blackie turned 18 in 1984 and that's when we started playing in pubs, yeah. you know. Before that it was um, – I think you, you could go and get um, – like your parents had to come with you or something like that. But, uh, yeah, we just – none of our parents were all that, you know, all that um, – you know, they weren't doing cartwheels or we're in a punk band. I mean, yeah, we yeah. formed, we called the band the Hard Ones just so that we could annoy all, all the adults that we yeah. knew. So <laughs> it's funny you say that because I, um, my husband is a massive Hard Ons fan, and he's, I reckon he's got like six or seven Hard Ons T-shirts. Right. And I sometimes when we're out, I can sense people d- doing double takes at the name. That was a whole reason for the name, you know. Yeah. Um. It was, um, it's just an an extra weapon, you mm. know, for 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 um, to kind of. Uh, we just wanted to um, uh, make sure, even at a really young age, that we were going to cause some kind of um, uh, in-your-face statement, and because we learned all that from, you know, the shock tactics. We learned all that from. Um, uh, you know, bands like the Stooges. You know, you saw. You know, I remember seeing photos of Iggy covered in peanut butter. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I, I remember like um, the swastika that uh, Sid Vicious used to wear. And and you know, you'd read legendary stories about the Velvet Underground. And like the first album had a song called Heroin on it. So all these like, I, I remember like reading about the Velvet Underground and how seedy that scene was and all that kind of stuff. And I remember thinking, well, this is kind of like a, um, uh, it's performance art in itself. Mm. So the name of the band um, really helped us kind of uh, uh, 
be apart from everybody and just be floating around on their own kind of thing. Yeah. And so when when you do that, then people take notice of you. So absolutely. Yeah. So our career um, uh, was really fast tracked because of it. And but uh, people are like, oh, if you didn't have that band name. You know, maybe you would have gotten in the charts and stuff because a lot of our songs are very, very catchy. Yeah, really poppy but, as well. Yeah, but um, it's not something we wanted, you know. You know, it's uh, – if we did – I think if we really did want to make a go of making this uh, a, a career, then it, we would have done what our fr- friends did, which was like, um, you know, technically tighten up the skills and um, – do a lot more covers that people would like and you know so we we just um yeah we we didn't want to be um that kind of a band so if when you talk about not wanting the type of success that other bands wanted yeah did you think at that time that you would be making music lifelong like it's weird because i think it is you do kind of fall into it as maybe being your career even though yeah you're not chasing the the crazy success that everyone else is. Um, no, I, I, we had no idea how long it was going to last. Um, I think when I talked to Blackie, he said um, he want. Ever since he was a little kid, he just wanted to do just that. Yeah. And um, the the question whether it was going to be a career or not was irrelevant. Yeah. Um, you just it was the type of person he wanted to be. Just a just somebody doing that kind of stuff, and. You know, um, some families have got um, either the mother or the father will stay home and be the uh, stay-home mum or dad, Um, but they don't – it does – it still work. So – and it's – you know, the whole idea of Korea always um, uh, brings – you know, the connotation is money, you know. Yes. So the money comes in and then you pay off your mortgage with it or rent or whatever. And uh, I think it devalues bands that, bands like us, that don't make money from it, but we still do it as a lifelong thing, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of being, you know, uh, the whole, the, the term career and the connotation with money devalues playing in a band for me. And, you know, um, uh just as um, somebody who stays home with their, their two kids while the other partner goes in, into a regular job, you know, I, I find their role devalued. So they, they work probably 10 times harder than the, the person going to work sure. nine to five. Yeah. Um, but I think that's just how um, modern life skews things. Uh, but, you know, far as a career with a hard-ons is concerned, uh, whether it was going to be a lifelong thing, whether paid or not paid, um, I have this big problem of dividing the hard-ons career into two things. You know, the first part when before we broke up, because we went from our first gig uh, in a pub was 1984, and our last gig in a pub was before we broke up was um, at sometime in 1994, ten years later. But in 1993, we'd already decided to break up. And in 1994, we played, we had these gigs booked, so we played them and then we stopped playing. And then towards the end of 1994, we announced that we'd broken up and we're going to do a la- one last tour. But that most of that time, we were making a uh, decent, decent wage. Yeah. And when I talked to my friends who went from university or high school into employment, we were making more than them playing in a band. Yeah, and well, that you was a band. So hard, though. I mean, you guys toured your asses off forever. By the like, I'd done a thousand gigs by the time I turned twenty-five or yeah, whatever. That's you crazy. know, so we it was relentless, but it worked for us because we knew each other from primary school. Yeah. So it was like, what would you like to do on your time off? It's like, go on a holiday with my friends. <laughs> yeah, and what would you like to do on, on on those holidays? It's like, uh, go sightseeing get in a van, travel around the countryside, meet lots of people, yeah. uh, meet girls, you know. Eat some uh, nice food. Yeah. Um, learn about how other people live. It's like, yeah, you're going to get paid for it too. Yeah. It's like, well, 
Sign me up. Yeah. You know? How long for? Oh, for 10 years. <laughs> 10 years of your life. When? Yeah. Uh, between, say, 18 and 28. It's like, oh, the prime of my life, that's what I'm going to do for my life. Like, okay, I'll sign me up. Yeah. You know, that's what I did. That's and a that, great that's, way of so looking that, at that it. That was the first part of, and that was when I was paid to do it. Mm. And then um, when we reformed, we Why reformed. did you break up? Um, I still blame Nirvana. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's blame yeah. them for everything. Yeah. And, and then in, um, we reformed and when we came back, it, we'd already had day jobs. Yeah. So, uh, but it didn't mean the music was, uh, music was better when we reformed, but we weren't as popular. So not all things correlate, you know. So, um, I was happier with the band, happier than ever, but... Uh, we weren't getting paid as much. Um, but it doesn't mean it's like, well, you know, i got friends who did that and it's like, oh, we're not as popular, I'm going to break up. It's like, oh, well, that's because you're looking at it the wrong way, mm. you know, because you, you're, you're just, you got your calculator out and you're going, oh, I, c- I can't make the rent, you know. Yeah. Just maybe if you like the music that much, continue playing and then just Make sure that everything has to revolve around that. It's like, well, but I've got kids now. It's like, oh, well, then you're fucked, aren't you? You know, <laughs> should have thought of that first. It, but it's really hard. And then, but it I've is. got I've got friends in in Holland that, uh, that they, when they go on tour, the their local council um, pays their rent for them. Oh you know? wow! Yeah, which is great. But you know, we broke up the first time, like you asked, because. Um, uh, I don't know how much you know about the hard-ons, but if you look at the early photos of the hard-ons, we, we kind of look like well, what we look like now. So we were not underdressed, but we just kind of like we just kind of stepped off. You know, none of us put on stage costumes to go on stage or anything like that. And I think that was part of why people liked us because um, we didn't have to kick. Oh, all the support bands get out. We have to get changed. You know, we didn't have to go and get um, go into stage costume or anything. So there was. Um, I remember Brad Shepard from the Hoodoo Gurus um, watching us one big day out and he said, he goes, you know, you're the only real band here. I go, what do you mean? He goes, oh, everything else is fictional. You know, they, they put on a fictional show for people. I go, There's something wrong with that, is there? He goes, no, 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 no. But I just like watching a band that was 100% real. It was, you know, the way you played and the way you look, the way you sounded, the way you were afraid of your own volume, mm-hmm. it was really real, you know. And yeah. he goes, I like it. He goes, that's why people like you guys. You don't have stage personas. You are who you are off and on stage. Um, I think so, yeah. And 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 that's something that's good about the band, you know. Um, but we broke up because um, we were allowed to be, you know, left. we're left to our own devices. So every label that wanted to sign us up, we're like, okay, this – these guys called themselves the hard-ons when they were teenagers, you know, like when they were 15. You know, the band's name came around in 1982. I was 16. Blackie was 15. So we were kids and we came up with this band name and, you know, record labels were willing to work with us and it was a it was a band that had formed its blueprint when they hadn't formed other things like uh, moral obligations. And so we were like this out of control, like little kids. And the band was formed, that blueprint for the band was formed from that period. Mm. And yet labels wanted to sign us up. So I think that was good because we were being approached by major labels when we were called the hard-ons. And it was obviously, you look at photographs of us and it was like, well... No one's really brushed their hair, yeah. you know. No one's like, you know, it's a pair of jeans with holes in them, thongs. You know, you could see thongs, us wearing thongs. <laughs> um, but no one said anything. And because I think everyone knew that, hey, this is a strength for the band. Let them be. But then when Nirvana got big and this alternative rock started happening, um, we kind of felt that, uh, well, we didn't, a lot of it was grunge. And all of us didn't like grunge, you know, because we found it kind of, um, it was like hard rock played really badly. Um, and I found a lot of the music really depressing. Um, I like one Soundgarden record. 
I like um, one Alice in Chains song. I like... Um, you didn't like Nirvana at all? I liked a couple of Nirvana songs. Um, the drummer was a friend of mine. Well, he's still my friend, you know. Um, but uh, a couple of Nirvana songs on Nevermind the Good. I had Bleach. I bought Bleach when it came out. I didn't really like it. Um, but I can't be dishonest to myself. No. You know? I mean, I remember listening to the Partridge Family album and really loving it. But, I mean, it's hard to be really dishonest to yourself. And the whole time I was into punk rock, I still really loved ABBA, you know, yeah. and Kiss. And I just, what's the point of being dishonest to yourself? And i got to tell you, a great thing about being, you know, racial minority at a, you know, and being just unhooked from your old country and just shoved in a white country at a really young age one thing that it really gives you is like it it just makes you really be uh honest to yourself mm. it makes you ask a lot of questions even at a young age and uh when you you know because you don't make friends with a lot of people because they're gonna not like your color you know, I won't mention any names because I know there was one guy at school who didn't like me because of my skin colour. And I know his wife because we all went to primary school together. And she was, he couldn't meet a nicer girl, you know. She was really nice. And I remember thinking when, when we all turned eight, they, they got married when they were like 18 or 19. Wow. And I remember thinking, oh, well, she married that jerk. Yeah. She married and that racist. I don't even know if he was truly racist. I think he was just a just an idiot. And I don't I don't know how much hatred he had because of maybe he just didn't like me and he used my race as as an excuse. Yeah, you know, how you, you know, cuz you you don't like someone and you start making fun of them cuz they're short or Yeah, of course. You know, they got a birthmark or something. Yeah. So it was for me that was my skin color was my birthmark, yeah. you know. Um but when you meet people like that, you just go, "Well, God, you, you you really appreciate honesty, you know. Um, the whole idea that, uh, you know, and that's why punk rock really appealed to me because, um, you know, people for no fault of their own are aliens in this country that they have to kind of, oh, this is my home, but I'm an alien in my own house, you know. Punk rock really, you know, addresses that, you know, how to, uh, what it is to be an outcast. And so when we were kids, the hard-ons, it was like, well, we're outcasts because our, our drummer, Kesh, is Sri Lankan. But then when the three of us got together, it was like, um, you know, we were going to run with being an outcast. It was going to, we're going to turn around and make it to our advantage. Yeah, exactly. And embrace it and let's just run with it. And so I don't know if you saw... Um, a record cover that we did for a song called All Set To Go. It was three yeah. of us dressed as Ku Klux Klan members. I've seen the T-shirt that says Fuck White Folk. Uh, no, White Folk Suck. Oh, White Folk Suck. Yeah. And that was, um, <laughs> you know, that, that was when um, one of our friends got bashed by yeah. neo-Nazis at, at one of our gigs. And, uh, you know, uh, that was our response to kind of um, laugh back, you know, to use humour and use art to fight back. And I think I got it mixed up with the Fuck Hillsong t-shirt. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was <laughs> fucked something or another. But, but that was to use humour to, to, to get, get back at the people who bashed our friend. Of course. Yeah. Because yeah. he, um, he was Spaniard. He was yeah. olive-skinned Spaniard guy and these Nazis beat him up. That's awful. And um, uh, I think at a very – right at the start, the whole, the whole embracing the outcast became – a bit of a shtick for us, you know. I do really um, want to talk about your art because right. it's such a massive part of the hard-ons. Right. And it's obviously, um, you know, you're you're just incredible illustrator in my opinion. Oh, thank you. Um, oh. Did you start drawing before you were in the hard-ons? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you my, were doing album covers for other bands? No, there? no. When when, uh, when I was a little kid, my grandfather was a really good artist. Oh, cool. Yeah, and so he'd always encourage me to draw. So, you know... Um, you know, a lot of young kids go and stay with their grandparents for school holidays and stuff. Yeah. I used to go and stay with my granddad and he used to um, 
he was a really good illustrator, so he'd always like have like lots and lots of paper, and we'd 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 draw, um, we'd draw together, and uh, and then when we finished with the drawings, we'd make something with the drawings, like recycling. Great. We'd make paper aeroplanes or birds or whatever. Oh, that's yeah, lovely. So, um, so there was constantly recycling things to to make new art. Um, I remember he him getting like jars and bottles and stuff like that and gluing them together and making like cities like wow. toys out of them and stuff and painting them he'd get Great. paint and paint paint these cities made out of plastic bottles and stuff wow and so he it was thanks to him that i i started taking interest in art yeah and um uh when when blackie and Kesh formed this band the dead rats um because I was their friend, I'd, I'd and they'd always ask me to do like, uh, you know, I'd do the kick drum logo and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'd always drawn. So when the hard on started, um, you know, it was, uh, I'd always done artwork for them. Yeah. And how did you? I've noticed you have like a lot of geometric kind of elements in your artwork now. Oh. Um, how did that come about? Well, um, when. I won an award, like, you know, in high school you win end of year awards. Yes. And in our high school it was always books, right? Yeah. So um, every year I'd win some award. It was either for English or maths or whatever. And then you'd have to take um, uh, take this uh, gift voucher to a shop in Bankstown where I lived called Graham's Books. Mm. And you'd pick out a book. And one, one year when I was a kid I picked out um, – a book by MC Escher, and I still have the book, and it still has the uh, uh, certificate in there. Because, Aww. and then so you buy that book, and then you leave it at the bookshop, and then on uh, award ceremony night um, for the school, you go up and collect the book, and inside the the front panel there'd be like a little certificate, you know. So I had this book by MC, uh, well I think he pronounced it Escher, but he used a lot of geometric shapes, and the reason I got interested in him was because um, when I was really young, I saw a TV special about his art. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I, I just thought it was really good. And so um, uh, uh, I, when I was, uh, this is back in Korea, um, there was a friend of mine that used to be also a good drawer and we, he used to come around and we used to draw. And one day came came around with like big slabs of paper with, he'd drawn these um, kind of like surreal drawings with circles on them and I said how did you make circles that big and he said okay. he said well how I always make I go well my compass isn't big enough he goes <laughs> are you using a compass he go, and he said uh, well, you know what, what, why, why take the stairs when there's an elevator right there so he he, he, showed, he goes give me a piece of paper so he got a really big piece of paper and then he cut one end of it so he had this long strip and then he got two pencils. He stabbed the pencil in one end oh. and then stabbed the other pencil and then he used one as a fulcrum and then used the other one Great. to spin and make the circumference. And he goes, see how big I'm making the circle? And then I went, duly noted. <laughs> so I've been using that technique to make big circles. And yeah. then, then, of course, when you <laughs> remove the fulcrum, it makes a little dot where the center of the circle is. From there, you draw lines out and then you can use your protractor then to get the degrees. So how many uh, st um, points should the star have? Dip well, you divide that by um, the 360, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, you, you yeah, just divide 360 by the how many um, angles you want and then you can, you know, so it's... Amazing. But I, yeah, my friend, friend taught me that when I was eight. Yeah, like we were like, uh, we're in primary school together. And he, he taught me how to do that because he was also a really good drawer. But he, was, he wasn't – he was like my drawing rival. <laughs> drawing nemesis. Yeah, but he was really good with – yeah, but he used to, you know, his dad used to get him like like really extra long rulers and stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah, so he was really good at that. And then and then then, then when we came to Australia, um, I, I saw that special on MC Escher on, on TV. It wasn't a special. It was like a quick – uh, snippet of it and then I got obsessed with him if you look at my artwork uh, it makes no th 3d sense so you would have 
one thing in front of another, but then that shouldn't physically it's not possible. So, um, so it really should be behind. Mm -hmm. But two D you can do that, but you can't do that in three D. And that's what Esche did too. Right. He used the fact that he was working in two D to make um, things that are impossible in three D actually happen. Right. Yeah. yeah. I love the picture that you did of John Lennon in front of the Opera House. Oh, I. I'll, we're all huge Beatles Amazing. fans. Yeah, so yeah. am I. Huge. I was obsessed with John Lennon when yeah. I was younger. So yeah. I, I love that. We've got a big poster of that in our wall. Oh, of the Hard-Ons one? Of the Hard-Ons. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. But I think it says something about him singing uh, a John George Harrison song. Yes. The irony of singing yeah. him attacking Sydney Harbour while singing a George Harrison That's song. Right. And I did that because um, I read somewhere that John was actually quite particularly um, arrogant and um, protective of his own yes. songs. And so uh, I read somewhere that during the White Album, when they were making the White Album, he was a little bit dismissive of um, George's songs or something like that. Okay. I read somewhere that, yeah. you know, and I, that's why I came up with that caption. I love it. But that original, I did, and I had an exhibition in 1990 with, um, you know, Reg Mombasa and a couple of other artists. I think Ben Brown from The Hillman was there and... Um, couple of other artists. Reg, Reg Mombasa's brother was there too. Um, and and we were selling um, our original pieces. And I sold that to the bass player from a band called Spy vs. Spy. Right. Remember that band? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah, so he bought that. Oh, wow. So when I wanted to reprint the T-shirt, I, I contacted him and said, hey, can you scan that and email it to me? So yeah. he did. Yeah. So we were <laughs> able to make the uh, T-shirt again. Yeah, I know you said you know you guys are big like pop fans and yeah, yeah. stuff as well. Do people get confused by what the hard ons are by the fact that you have really heavy songs and then really sweet pop songs? Yeah, I think so. Um, a lot of um, there was a magazine um called um Noise for Heroes. It was an old fanzine, and I met Steve, the editor, recently in Sydney. He's a record collector. Came to Australia to buy records. Um, we put out a record called uh. Love is a Battlefield of Wounded Hearts. And he said he liked that one. In the review was that he liked that one because it was quite melodic. He didn't like the one before, Dictures, as much because it was faster and heavier. And so, yeah, there was this um, lot of um, discussion about the dichotomy of the hard-ons. But for us, we, we didn't really um, think that it was a big deal. It, it was always there. Um, we were... Kids who got into music before punk happened, so it was all hard rock and metal. And then when we, when punk happened, we got obsessed with punk, but we still liked metal because we couldn't be dishonest to ourselves. So we had a lot of heavy metal influence in our music, but we also really loved pop music as well, you know. So ABBA is still one of my favourite bands, still, you know. So And we loved the Beatles and we couldn't really be dishonest to ourselves. Like a good song is a good song, you know. Yeah, well, my favourite hard-on song is Pretend It's Vanilla. Oh, that's pop. Super pop. Yeah. It's probably your most poppy song, yeah. maybe. Well, the new album's going to have lots of stuff like that on it. Oh, I can't really wait. Really super melodic. I love that you have both sides. Like, it, you know, it appeals to a lot of people and you can kind of go either way. Oh, there's a lot of poppy stuff on the yeah. new album. But there's also a hell of a lot of really heavy. It's just just chest-beating hard rock and, right. and thrash metal. There's a right. lot of that on the new album as well. <laughs> lots of it. I wonder if anyone ever listens to the record and just skips the heavy tracks or skips the pop songs. Um, I've had people say that. Yeah. Yeah, I've had people say that, um, you know, I, um, there was a label called Matador yeah. Records. Do you know that label, yes. Matador? Yeah. Okay, they, um, I think they did Teenage Fan Club and stuff. Uh, I remember being in America um, um, at, at this house party and the guy who tagged along with us was a guy who owned Matador mm. and he was saying um, he really didn't like uh, that single that we did called Suck and Swallow. I go, why? He goes, oh, it's, it's just hard rock. It's metal. And then I go, okay. And he goes, and it's so disappointing because the single before All Set to Go it was a really supercharged pop song. I like that. And he said, you know, if if I could just have just your pop stuff, you know, I'd, I'd love your band. You'd be one, my favourite <laughs> band. And I go, well... You can make a playlist. Yeah, you can. Well, back then it was all records <laughs> yeah, right. and cassettes. Yeah. And, and I was, oh, well, I didn't want to be rude to him, so I just let him say whatever he wanted. But I thought, oh, well, you can't make everyone happy. 
That's right. So you've got to make gotta yourself, make yourself happy. happy. Yeah. 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 I guess so. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love hearing you talk about so many record labels. Is that because did you collect records a lot when you're on tour? Yeah, we, when we would go overseas, um, we'd go to um, we go to a lot of record shops, and we were touring America in eighty and Europe in eighty eight, eighty nine, and then we went to Europe in ninety one, and then we went to America and Europe again in ninety three, and this is a period when you would go to a record shop in some small town, and there'd be uh, there'd be sh- shops with one wall to wall one dollar records. Wow! And it wouldn't wasn't rubbish. It was good stuff. You know, it was like, you know, so uh, you're like, okay, I can pick up every Rolling Stones record and every Beatles record for a dollar each, and that's Amazing. what we did. And and I just kept on buying them. If I if I saw them, I just I just keep on buying. Uh, you know, multiple record. multiple copies of things like, um, you know, Let It Bleed by Rolling Stones. It's a, it's a dollar. I'll buy another one, you know. We have something like that actually where every time um, my husband and I find Dare yeah. by the Human League, yeah. we buy it. Oh, that's it's almost a great like we record. have to re- rescue it from yeah. all the record stores if that's, it's that's cheap a, enough. That's an incredible record. Yeah, yeah, we've got so many copies at home. Well, I've to got, give them out yeah. to friends now. I've still got like eight copies of Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, and, wow. And Ten copies of Rubber Soul, you know. But um, I remember um, going to um, Ashwood's Records. Um, this was a uh, really famous second-hand record shop in Sydney. And I remember bumping into Rob from Radio Birdman. Yeah. And then so, so I said, oh, hi, Rob, how's it going? Said, yeah, how you going, Ray? Uh, and by then, he'd already produced one of our records and we became good friends and stuff. And then he had the first record by The Jam. Yeah. And I go, in the city, I thought you'd have that by now. He goes, yeah, I do. It's three bucks. <laughs> and I go, what do you need two copies for? He goes, I don't need two copies. He goes, I, I just can't leave it here. Yeah. I go, okay, it was three bucks. Yeah. And then he said to me, it's three bucks and if somebody really wants it, I'm going to give it to him. You know, if, yeah. if my friend wants it, I'm going to give it to him. He goes, I'm just stockpiling the cheap stuff. And I was went, what a great idea. So yeah. I started doing the same. So I'd see Never Mind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols. I'd go, oh, it's a dollar. And, and, I, and, and at no stage <laughs> did I think this would never happen again. Um, they'll come, make a comeback and this will be worth a fortune. I didn't think that. Well, I, was just, I just kept on stockpiling them. Yeah. And then when um, all the big department stores like David Jones, Walton's, Meyer, or whatever they were called, all these big department stores started shutting their getting rid of the records, replacing them with CDs, I, I, I swear to God, I'd just turn up and just buy everything for a dollar each. So, <laughs> like, I remember hitting one David Jones, all the doors back catalogue, brand new, one dollar each. Wow. I go, what about the one with Jim Morrison with his arms outstretched, double album, greatest hits, the best of? That's still a dollar. You know, I'll take I'll take four copies, thanks, all dollar each. So I just, I'd stockpile all these records for a dollar each. You know, That's and great. and it was a time to do it. Yeah. You know? And now those records are worth way more. But I mean, you know, I did do a lot of swaps. I I, I you know, I I did a few record fairs where I'd have all these one dollar records and I'd sell them for five dollars each and think, God, I made a huge profit here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, I want to um, I want to ask you the last question, which is the question yes. I ask everyone. Yeah. Can you tell me a story of your strangest show experience or just a strange thing that's happened to you because you play music? I imagine you have many. Uh, we, we did a show um, in Italy, but we the way we got there was like, um, you know, that um, Steve Martin movie, uh, Planes, Trains, Automobiles. Yeah. It was a bit like that. <laughs> so we, we, um, uh, we, were, we had this big Renault van and um, we're driving through uh, Italy and um, we're on the motorway in Italy, and Blackie was saying, "There's there's this funny smell coming from from inside the van," and we're like, "It's because your nose is really big. You can, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you, you know, you, if something's, you know, like a bloodhound can smell a bakery, yeah. you know, eighteen kilometers away, so." You know, this isn't accurate information. You smelling something doesn't mean anything. So, you know, so get back in your cubby house, Pinocchio. Go back to sleep. We've got the control. So we're driving and and Blackie goes, listen, 
stop the van. There's something dramatically wrong here. I can smell something burning. And we're like, what are you talking about? And all of a sudden, boom! You know, we heard this smashing oh of coming from the engine. And then the, 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 the van stopped. And then all of a sudden, it was like, why does the van feel hot? And so the, the, the engine cover was in the front between the passenger and the, just behind the, 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 the driver and the passenger seat. And we opened up the cover and it was on fire. Oh, my like, God. Oh, what are we going to do? So we took all the stuff on the side. We'd roll, we'd roll to the side of the freeway. Yeah. And um, we got the marshals. We had have, we have four marshals. We stacked them up and we were hiding behind the marshals waiting for the… <laughs> a barrier. Yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and uh, this is 1989 and we'd, um, we'd pick up like girly magazines from petrol stations and we'd cut out pictures and was, there was no women on tour it was just men yeah. and so we stuck them up on the, the ceiling and the back of the van sure. it's like five guys on tour like yeah, six yeah. guys on tour all in their early 20s yeah yeah yeah. In, the uh, 80s. yeah in the yeah, yeah in the 80s and then i remember kesh was hiding behind um behind the the marshal we're all waiting for the van to explode because <laughs> it was on fire and kesh pulls out a picture and he goes i saved this one <laughs> he pulled just before he got it he pulled it off his favorite yeah, one and then he put it back in his pocket <laughs> and I, I still remember it to this That's day i remember him just staring at the van still putting it back just in his pocket and so his... me and me and simon who was our driver yeah we ran through there was a cornfield and we ran through the cornfield to, to try and get help and so we got to um we got to this um, little village and there was nothing, was, everything was shut and there were um, these old Italian guys playing uh, chess in, in, in this pub. So we went in there and we, no one could speak English and we are trying to say, look, our Renault van has unfortunately been in, engulfed in flames <laughs> in the engine bay. Would somebody care to call the fire brigade or at mm. least give us a bucket of water or something? Yeah. You know, there's imminent danger of mm. an explosion. And they're like, no capish, no capish. Oh, and we're like, oh, what are we going to do? So um, I got a piece, they had a piece of paper and I said, no, okay, okay, okay. They gave me a pencil and I drew a Renault van. <laughs> and I even drew the, the little, um, the grill slits where the air Amazing. opening was. And I drew, drew it really accurately and then drew flames. <laughs> And then I went, push. <laughs> and then we ran back. And then one guy got on the phone straight away. We ran back through the cornfield. Um, you know, so I feel like one of the children of the corn. But we <laughs> ran through the cornfield. And the corn, corn stalks were like really high up to mm. our chins, you know. We ran through. So... So from a distance, I must have looked like an oriental shark, you know, parting the waves through the cornfield. Like <laughs> I, I went through the cornfield with Simon. We ran through and when we got back to the van, the, um, the fire brigade was already there and they were um, the best looking fire brigade I'd ever seen. They were immaculately dressed. Their, their uniform was uh, charcoal grey and maroon and they had these pinstripes down their legs oh, oh it was great. amazing they yeah they look really good they've been a band hey oh that, yeah they, they look like a boy band yeah yeah anyway they, they put the fire out and they they called the ambu um like a tow truck and a, and a tow truck eventually came and they took it to this it was really in the middle of nowhere in north italy uh just in this rural farmland and we went to uh, the van got towed to this um this kind of like this industrial estate and the first thing i saw was um a, a graveyard i'm like going we're not dead yet I, and i'm like going is this an episode of twilight zone because that episode where these people die in a horrible van fire but they don't know that they're dead oh and they gosh. get towed to <laughs> a graveyard a graveyard and they this they they stare at their own own great headstones is this an episode because I really want to know because, I mean, what are we doing at a graveyard? Anyway, <laughs> behind the graveyard entrance was um, 
a, a, a workshop, a car, a car oh, workshop. Right. I was like, oh, okay, we're going there. We're yes. going to get our van fixed. And we went there and they couldn't speak English. But I did pick up a word. It was pronto. In, in Italy, when a woman picks up a phone or a man picks up a phone, they say, pronto. And I heard that word a lot because the phone was going off the hook. They were yeah. really busy. The woman kept on answering the phone, pronto, pronto, with the phone. I'll, there was an Italian word that I picked up while yeah. I was waiting for something to be done yeah. about a van. All the while, we're somewhere past Torino in Italy and we have to go to Rimini on the, I think it's way southeast. To, we had to get to this gig. Um, actually, it wasn't. Torino, it was Milano, I remember. Um, we're going, how are we going to make this gig? Uh, we were playing with this band. The, the support band that night was a band called Firehose. Um, they used to be called the, the Minutemen and they're on SST. Yeah. But they changed the name when um, um, the guitar player died and they replaced him with someone else. Yeah. And we thought, okay, if we can make the gig... Uh, fire hoses are gonna, you know, they 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 would have good gear because yeah. we saw them in London, and they had they had pretty good backlines. They, they probably have good backline again, so that we'll have to borrow that. So we called the promoter and told them what had happened. And uh, all the while, we're trying to figure out how to get a hire car, and no one could speak English, mm. and we didn't know where we were really. And uh, this young guy turned up in another tow truck, and he had really long hair. And he apparently was the son of the business owner and he spoke really good English. And then he he said, what happened? And I go, we told him what happened. He goes, You're in a band? Goes, yes. Which band? <laughs> so the hard-ons. And then at that point, his eyes went size of dishes and he collapsed to his <gasps> knees. And he had put his hands in his head and he started screaming, Mamma Mia. And he's like... I go, they actually do use that term, Mamma Mia. He said, Mamma Mia, he starts screaming. And then he got up and he put his hands on, um, I remember Kesha's shoulders, and he yeah. says, I have concert ticket for you. And then, because we were playing, we were playing at, um, we were playing at, uh, that's why I always thought we were close to Torino, because we were playing at a place called Hiroshima Mon Amour in yeah. Torino. And he ran into the office and pulled out the concert ticket that he bought for our concert. And he goes, and then he goes, <laughs> I have your records. And he was saying that he had his records at his house and he was uh, a big hard-ons fan. Oh. He was going to come. And he goes, yeah. And he, and he just said, my lucky day, my lucky day, the hard-ons are in my shop. My wow. lucky day. And they go, your lucky day? <laughs> yeah. Fuck, champ. Help us. Yeah. <laughs> You're lucky day. We're lucky. Yeah. He said, okay, help us. And so he organized <clears throat> a hire car for us in Milano wow. at the airport. So at the at Milan airport, there was a hire car company. So he called two taxis. Uh, I think it was a one taxi or two taxis. Anyway, we got into this taxi and um, we... Um, caught this taxi to Milano Airport. It was about, I think it was about three hours away and cost us a fortune. But the only thing we could take was our guitars um, and um, nothing else, just a small bag of merch. Yeah. And the, it was a small car, so a small cab. So we got there we, and then from there <clears throat> um, we got the hire car. It was a really small car again and there were two people in the front and there was um that's right there was only f okay there was 989 so there was only five of us so there was tim Pittman, our our manager mm -hmm. and sound guy simon who did um he was our roadie mm -hmm. and the three of us it was yeah. five of us so there was three of us sitting in the back with our guitars on our laps and we we drove and drove and drove and drove to Milan, um rimini until we got to um uh, we realized that everyone was like um like not paying attention to red lights anyway so we okay. we were jumping <laughs> we were jumping uh red lights as well yeah. to get there and we got to um the outskirts of Rimini and we'd organized to meet the promoter and the promoter was there waiting in inside the car mm. and he was like waving us down when yeah. we got to, and then we followed him uh all the way to the venue and when we got to the venue fire hose were on stage 
and they they were on their last song and they just oh. finished and so we just kind of more or less just made it amazing and so we we ran on stage and this was because um from milano airport i think it was about five hours so it, it was been a long day maybe yeah. it wasn't five hours maybe it was three hours or something still but it was a long lot. trip yeah so it was going from north italy to kind of like more south southeast i think it was yeah. a- anyway we got there and we started playing and after about five songs blackie blew up the firehose guitar players <laughs> amp <laughs> and he had the shits and, oh, and kind no. of probably rightly yeah. so but i mean what can we do um but we made it and then after the show um i don't think the firehose guitar player was that happy with us yeah. but um the bass player um what was his name? He was a really Mike good, what? yeah, yeah, really, yeah. really good bass player. He was sitting. We we went to the bar next door, which was open. So me and him um, sat there just talking um, bass and uh, and about about uh, what had happened. Yeah, what yeah. had happened? Not just what had happened, but about playing in 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 the band. And oh, great. so yeah, talk, I talked to him for a, a yeah. while, but he was. I found him to be really humble. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that yeah. about him. Yeah, and. Because I was saying, oh, I saw you in London and, you know, I saw you again tonight. I really like your bass playing. He goes, because I'm not that good. <laughs> he, he kept on saying, I'm not that good. He goes, he called him, he, he goes, I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm not really a bass player. He goes, I'm, I don't really know what I'm doing, you know. And then the next day, we're playing Rome. So we had this hire car and we got to Rome and they had to have all this equipment for us and... And they just had tiny little combos. Oh yeah. Which was uh well, not we, comparable well, we to the Well, stuff. we just had to use it. There's yeah. nothing you can do. There's, but t- I'll I'll say this though, every show was sold out. Because that was our first ever trip to Italy. So we'd had all this momentum from the, the tour we did the year before and yeah. the word got out that we were a good live band. And that show in Rome was sold out, so it was gonna be a good gig, but we didn't have um any backline because we we're in this high car. And we got there and there was like tiny little combos and me and Blackie are like, well, that's what we'll have to use. Yeah. But the drum kit was a toy drum kit. It was for a little kid. So <laughs> like the kick drum was the size of like uh, a floor tom. And Kesha's like, it was the first time I've seen him lose his temper because <laughs> Kesha's so laid back that he's, if he was any more laid back, he'd be dead. He just does not care. And he's looking at this drum kit and he goes, he goes that's a toy kit. Yeah. You got to get me a real kit. That is not <laughs> that is not a real kit. Yeah. That's a toy kit. I can't use it. That is an undersized toy kit. Looks yeah. like it's been left out in the rain and it's shrunk. <laughs> I can't use it. And then I remember Blackie saying something like, "Oh, I want to know where the monkey is. There's got to be a monkey here somewhere." <laughs> The, the monkey's been pulled off, the kid, <laughs> and we're all like making fun of it. But Kesh isn't finding it funny. He's going, that is a toy. He goes, yeah. I can't play that. Yeah. He goes, I can't even sit on it. And did he play it? No, we he... made them go and get um, a proper drum kit from oh, a yeah. hire shop. Yeah. And they said, the, um, they said they had to put a deposit. It was a million lira. We're like, a million lira? How and much is that? A thousand dollars. Oh, right. Yeah. That's still a lot. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That was a deposit. Yeah. And it's like, well... Mate, the show sold out. Yeah. So you've made a bit of coin. Yeah. You know, and you get the money back if we don't trash the kit. And we've got no intention of trashing the kit. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, well, we heard you've set your equipment on fire. Oh, we don't. It's the van. <laughs> what happened to the Marshall stack next to the van? They, they got left in the van. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they we've chucked it back in and they got left in the van. <laughs> okay. And then after uh, Rome... Uh, we drove back to uh, Torino to play okay. the show in Torino, yeah. but we went past the the place where we um, had the you know the workshop yeah. where the van was. Your biggest fan. Yeah, and the the um, uh, the there was another van there, but yeah. it was a smaller van, but it still oh, okay. worked. Yeah. So we put all the other stuff in the new van. Yeah. And we drove to Torino, oh, and then okay. before we went, I said, and I still remember his name. His name was Alex, and I said to. Aww. Alessandro, right? So I said to Alex, um, so you're coming to the show tonight in Torino? Yeah, see, si, see. Si. It's like, uh, should I put you on the guest list? Uh, I already have a ticket. I go, oh, good. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but he came to the show. Yeah. That's lovely. In, in 89. What a great yeah. story. And then in um, 91, we played the same club again. Uh, uh, 
Hiroshima, uh, Hiroshima mon a mon,、mm. and he came. the The、Aww. guy from the workshop,、yeah. he came, but this time he had really long dreadlocks.、Whoa. Yeah, so he he changed his image a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, but he still came. Oh, yeah. Hey, um, I'm very mindful that you have to go. Oh yeah, we have to go to uh, uh, Gold Coast tonight to play, to play with、yeah. Rose Tattoo. Yeah, so yeah. Um. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. I've really,、oh, really loved、no、your、promise. stories. Thank you.